Chapter 15 The House of Love This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wallace Morgan The House of Love by Elizabeth Cheney. Ode to Joy The last morning, Robert Austin went back to his work, but his father chose to remain in Bozen and to accompany the ladies on their return the last of the week. Even in the midst of his absorption in his own perplexing affairs, Robert could but notice as he stepped into the railway compartment that he had never seen the doctor look so well nor step with so buoyant a tread. Robert's thoughts were like sheep having no shepherd. He was almost irresistibly attracted to Doris, was conscious of the response of her spirit to his, and yet he felt pledged to the quest of the unknown singer. His sincerest efforts to find her had failed, but he might yet overcome. The obstacles that seemed to intervene, and as Doris had said, what was really his could not be ultimately kept from him. With this he drew a notebook from his pocket and endeavored to concentrate on the professor's last lecture on the housing of the poor. Arrived in Munich, his first errand was to a bookshop where he ordered a number of new magazines sent to Miss Gilbert. Unwilling to confess to himself that the pleasure of that worthy lady was not his ulterior motive. After a few days had passed, he began to realize that he was looking forward to the coming of Doris, and that his zeal for discovering the lady of the oratorio had become considerably modified. This hurt his pride in himself somewhat, but at the same time brought a sense of relief to his mind. On Saturday, he went to the railway station to meet the little party. Dr. Alston, a lighted radiant, as if reflecting some mysterious brightness unseen by the crowd, and as he handed out Miss Gilbert, she turned on Robert a face so illuminated by happiness that it seemed as if twenty birthdays had been obliterated from her list of years. The eyes of Doris were dancing with suppressed good news, but Robert, as he took her outstretched hand in greeting, only realized the atmosphere of general well-being about the trio and said, Heartily, surely the mountain air has agreed wonderfully with you all. Miss Gilbert looked over her shoulder at him and said, mischievously, She came down on the train with us. Who? asked Robert, with such genuine failure to grasp the meaning of the statement, that Miss Gilbert and the doctor exchanged a look of gratified surprise which was fortunately lost upon Robert. Ah, yes, he went on, tardily his face turning scarlet. I am so glad to see you all back again that I can think of nothing else at this juncture. However, I'll see you to the automobile, father. As the ladies reached their hotel, Miss Gilbert said, There are yet two hours to supper. Will you not both take it in our living room with us? Robert may have another engagement, replied the doctor, with a wicked twinkle in his eyes. 
but I am quite at liberty. And I also, added Robert hastily, as they were about to step into the lift to go to their rooms, Robert said, I think I will run around to the florist, Dad, and order some roses for Miss Avery. Wait a minute, Bob, said his father, drawing his purse from his pocket and taking out his card. Suppose you add a big bunch of violets done up in good shape. Don't they tie them with ribbons the same color? Long ends, you know, and all that? Robert's heart almost stood still. Could it be that his father was in love with Doris? Stranger things than that had happened. His father was a fine-looking man with a commanding bearing, a delightful talker, and really much younger than his actual years. It was only an instant, but quite long enough for the knowledge to flash through Robert's soul that he loved her himself beyond a doubt. His dream had already vanished. In the dawning of this new day, now the sun rose and he could see clearly what terrible complication was this? No wonder his father had grown younger and happier and had taken even extra pains with his personal appearance. Robert recalled the times that he had seen the two talking animatedly together, apparently on the best of terms. The elevator had already disappeared, and he turned and walked slowly out to the street facing, as he thought, a great renunciation. His father had given up his life to get him started on the right track, and now that this joy had come to renew the faded hues of life's picture, Robert must resolutely put his own happiness underfoot. He would never engage in the list against the doctor. He entered the flower shop inspected the most beautiful and costly blossoms, and having made his selections, asked for two small envelopes to enclose the cards. He was about to write the name of Miss Avery on the second card, when, with a thrill of uncertainty, he suddenly bethought himself that his father had not definitely said that the violets were for Doris. He asked permission to use the telephone and in a moment heard his father's voice at the receiver in their own apartment. Dad, said Robert, you didn't tell me what name to write on the envelope. Don't be an ass, Bob. Do you want to know the width of the Atlantic Ocean or the capital of Massachusetts? But Dad, I really don't recall her initials. W.L., replied his father. Miss Waverly Lyndon Gilbert, of course. Who else could it be? Goodbye, shouted Robert. That evening, Doris had a surprise. There was some little delay in serving the supper, and Miss Gilbert asked Robert to sing. He made no excuse whatever, but went to the piano, struck a few cards with an accustomed hand, and began to pour out a rich baritone and the strains of Annie Laurie. Pardon the trite selection, he said, but Dad was whistling the air while he was dressing. I've not heard him whistle for years until tonight. Robert spoke lightly, 
but he had sung the dear old love song with a pathos and tenderness that had astonished them all. You seem to be in practice, said Doris. It must be you sing a great deal. Not nearly as much as I would if there were someone to play my accompaniments. I enjoy singing so much more if I could stand. A new world had opened to these two. Will you kindly look over the sheet music on the piano and see if there may not be a few of your favorite songs? Asked Doris. Not in the sheet music, of course, but there are several bound volumes that contain songs in your register. But tell me, please, said Robert, surprised at the quality of music for the voice that was right at hand. How is it you have so much vocal music here when you never sing yourself? I am passionately fond of singing, replied Doris, and by playing the accompaniments to the songs I love and humming the airs, I get a great deal of pleasure. Ah, here is the evening star, exclaimed Robert. Shall we have a try at it? Doris took his place on the piano stool and began the exquisite introduction. Each was transported in spirit to the lonely road on the mountainside, and Robert was the noble-spirited, hopeless lover, and Doris was Elizabeth kneeling at the shrine. A new world had opened to these two, an endless perspective of happy hours. No one had ever played for Robert so agreeable an accompaniment, adapting itself perfectly to his mood, sustaining, completing, inspiring his voice, and Doris had never taken such delight in this difficult and self-effacing art. You will regret that I ever discovered your talent, Miss Avery, said Robert as he finished. I only regret that we must stop to eat, replied Doris as the waiters appeared with the supper trays. Robert had fully realized that afternoon that his problem was solved, so far as he was concerned, and now the last vestige of disappointment about the singer disappeared and the pleasure he had taken in his own power to express himself by means of the sympathetic playing of his companion. During the cheery meal followed, Dr. Austin and Miss Gilbert announced their engagement. The episode in the telephone booth had prepared Robert for the news, as well as a reflection he had happened to see in the large mirror during his solo. Dad, he said, I fear this will go to my head. I is this sort of thing contagious? I hope so, said Dr. Austin. If it can bring you a like revelation, we are like those who find late in the autumn. Among the dead leaves of the forest, a cluster of violets in full bloom. This may upset our plan somewhat, Robert. Alice and I are eager to get back to the ridge and open up our old house, queried Robert. Certainly not, Robert, answered Miss Gilbert with a smile. Your father has promised not to take me away from my home, but we have alterations to make before winter. Of course, you are always more than welcome to stay with us. Thank you kindly, replied Robert, 
but I have really set my heart on settling down in the manor this fall. Dad, you are a deserter. When does this wedding come off? Two weeks from today, answered his father promptly. Tom, I have never said so, remonstrated the bride-elect. But I have, replied the doctor. I received a letter from dear old Miss Graves today, said Doris. Did you know her, Dr. Austin, and her funny little on-the-stairs post office? I've seen her handing out mail through a small window below the fanlight, he answered. But I did not make her acquaintance. She is darling, said Doris, and one of my best friends. She has written all the news, and it makes me feel that I, too, want to go back soon. The Austins had heard the story of Doris at deep brower form from Miss Gilbert. Has anything bad enough happened to the wilds? inquired Robert savagely. Oh, I did not want anything to happen to them, said Doris reproachfully. They make for themselves a lot of unhappiness. But Miss Graves writes that Dr. Wild is dead. He put a red apple in my Christmas stocking. Now his wife carries on the business. She's quite equal to it, interploded Miss Gilbert. And Ariella was sent to a fashionable boarding school, went on Doris, and eloped with a clerk in a grocery store. Miss Wilde was nearly crazy with the shock of it, but finally took them home to the farm, and he is head man and doing very well. But why do you wish to return? asked the doctor. I want to see Grandma Lane, said Doris, her eyes filling with tears. She is often asking for me. She says, I want to see Doris before I die. I want to hear her. Here, Doris paused suddenly in confusion. She had almost betrayed her precious secret. Her voice once more, she went on. You see, Grandma and I were great chums and had long talks at bedtime. Well, I foresee no walking trip this year, said Robert, except to the steamship company's office. But we have that one climb at Bozen to remember always, said Doris. It was like the glory of a thousand days, all condensed into one morning. Bob, said his father on the way to their rooms that night, what would you say to a double wedding? You and I have been comrades a long time. Grand idea, said Robert, grimly. You seem to know all right how I feel, but unfortunately you cannot tell me anything about Doris. Indeed I can, replied the doctor with energy. You two were made for each other. You know it. Would you credit her with less intuition than you? Go ahead, my boy. You're a dear old fellow, exclaimed Robert, slapping his father on the back. I'll do it. So the wooing of Doris proceeded, and with such a milling of tact, fever, caution, delicacy, and daring on Robert's part, and with so half-hearted a defense by Doris that the siege lasted only ten days, there are certain simple, direct words older than the oldest temple on the Nile, which Robert finally spoke. Doris, 
I love you. But Robert, she said earnestly, are you altogether sure that there is no lingering wish in the very last little nook in your heart? No wish for the singer who charmed you so? Is there no hint of regret that you could not find her? No longing to hear her voice again? No real pain to you in the fact that you cannot expect me to sing for you? Doris, darling, you yourself are a song. I want no one but you, now and always. A few days later, in the little American church, there were two wedding ceremonies so quietly performed that none of the people in the adjoining library, absorbed in magazines and papers, knew what was going on. The rector's wife and the librarian were the only witnesses, with the exception of Angel Gabriel and the lovely Madonna in the rich memorial window above the altar. Some of the readers glanced up as the two striking-looking couples passed through the library to the front entrance. One curious lady approached the rector, saying, Please, Dr. Jennings, who were those people? They seemed like a wedding party. They haven't been long married, I believe, he answered gravely. The Austins had not planned to leave Munich to be loved for their wedding journeys. Why should they mingle their blessedness with the dust and grime of a railway tour? Neither did an automobile trip appeal to them. No, it happened on that very night. Lo of Vienna was to conduct Beethoven's Ninth Symphony in the town hall, and they agreed to go together and sit on the brink of that ocean of joy and let its waves roll over their spirits on this night of all nights. It seems to me that my heart will break with happiness, whispered Doris to her aunt as they sat at an early supper in a private dining saloon of a popular hotel where they were not known. The house of love is more than wonderful than ever. Dear, said the doctor's wife, the symphony will relieve the tension of your spirit. It will let out of prison for us all tonight the bliss and gratitude that we ourselves could never utter. To hear the nice sympathy which Beethoven wedded forever to Schiller's Ode to Joy is at any time an accent unto the heavenlies. To hear it as these four heard it at the close of years of loneliness, years that had brought darkness and isolation to Miss Gilbert and heart hunger to them all was to leave this earth for a season and float on a sea of pure celestial light. My thought always goes back to the account of the first performance of this symphony, said Dr. Ralston. As they took their seats in the balcony before the beginning of the performance, could anything have been more pathetic than the figure of the composer unseeing, unhearing, and the presence of that great audience beside themselves with enthusiasm? They stood and waved handkerchiefs, shouted, wept, clapped, and poor Beethoven sat with his head bowed on his breast in darkness and melancholy until one of the singers impelled him to rise and face the audience. Then the waves of applause, the spirit of appreciation reached his sensitive spirit, and subsequently the shock of his success almost ended his life. How it proves the reality of the spiritual world that this majestic work was written by one 
who was shut away from all earthly sounds, said Miss Gilbert musingly. The written note seemed to me, replied Doris, just the physical bodies of the tones. It is not strange that one black dot can stand for such. Sweetness or pain, fear, anger, peace, love, or praise. The orchestra now entered, and the great tone drama of the evolution of a soul began with those tentative pianissimo measures that seemed to be groping their way through a mist of uncertainty towards the light. The first movement seems to depict the struggle with doubt and toil and pain, the failure to understand why we exist and why we suffer, and mingled with it all a yet deeper, darker strain of despair. The second movement presents the joys of earth to which the half-developed soul turns to satiate its thirst. The light whirl of pleasure, the delights of love, the beauty of nature are all portrayed in appealing and exhilarating cadences. In the first part of the third movement, the soul begins to realize its birthright, its oneness with divine love, and to rise to serener heights. This was played with such exquisite feeling, with such a smooth, singing quality that lo the great director who had held every instrument in that orchestra under the control of a slender baton turned slightly and smiled at his first violin out of the fullness of his own joy in the rendering but even here the old mystery and melancholy again make themselves felt and there is another conflict with the powers of darkness and then the soul strengthened by its pain divested of its illusions, purified through its suffering, soars upward into the freedom of its union with all good, truth, and beauty, and finds the joy of the universe. Then the great chorus of three hundred voices burst forth in rapture with Schiller's words, the instruments almost besides themselves with ecstasy. Self is now lost sight of. The joy of one is the joy of all. The Austins made their way slowly out with the crowd. What music for our wedding day, said Robert to Doris, in a tone too low for any other ear to hear, as he held close the arm he had drawn through his own. Just look at dear old dad. Isn't his face an ode of joy? And Aunt Alice's too, answered Doris softly. But Robert, you ought to see yourself. dear." It's reflected light. You are radiant. If there weren't so many people around, I would kiss you. I've a mind to. Anyhow. Oh, Robert, the doctor is putting Aunt Alice in a taxi. Let's hurry. Why, they're not waiting for us. They're off. Robert smiled at the blank dismay on the face of his bride. And he said, as he hailed another taxi, Doris. They don't want us. Do you care very much? You know I don't. He gathered her close to his side in the gloom of the automobile and kissed her. Robert, dear, please tell me one thing, she said earnestly. I'll never ask you again. Did you think of that Lucas Curse singer once this evening? Yes, I did, replied Robert frankly, for I shall never hear... An alto solo without comparing the voice with hers. Oh, 
said Dora sadly. But dearest of girls, can you guess what else I thought at the same time? No, Robert. Let me know the worst. Well, I thought how thankful I am that I did not find her. The last of July saw the little party homeward bound. The marriage of Dr. Austin and Miss Gilbert had been the chief topic of conversation at the Ridge and the adjoining country for several weeks. Robert's marriage had been kept a secret. They arrived one Saturday night and all went to Miss Gilbert's home. On Sunday morning, the little church was packed to overflowing and before the time for the services to begin, all eyes were turned towards the manor house pew. Many low-voiced comments made a soft murmur all over the auditorium. Miss Wilde and Ariella, who rarely were present, now occupied their old places. They had come especially to see Doris, who had been expected to accompany her aunt home, and their hearts were filled with the wormwood of envy. They expected to see a tall, refined-looking young woman. They knew she had enjoyed superior advantages and had profited by them, but they nor anyone else did not dream that Doris was coming home as a bride and the mistress of their old manor house. So the eyes that at first were fixed in eager curiosity on the doctor and his wife were speedily more intensely interested in the young couple who followed them down the aisle. Could it be possible that the beautiful girl in exquisite filmy white was Doris Avery, who used to blacken Miss Wilde's stove and wash her saucepans and kettles? But what was that? Every native or adopted resident of Waverly Ridge or the corners knew by sight Lady Margaret's wonderful pearl brooch by a sort of unwritten law it had always been worn at her first appearing by a Waverly bride and never again. It was always kept in a safe in the vestry wall with the communion silver. Robert had determined that Doris should wear the heirloom that morning. And he made an early trip to the rectory with the result that the valuable gems in their ancient setting nestled amid the laces at the throat of his dear lady, silently conveying the tidings that he had made his choice. Wonder, love, and gratitude filled the heart of Doris as she knelt in prayer between her aunt and her husband and realized what those two had brought into her life. She went back in thought to that faraway morning when she sat in the wild's unfriendly pew. She recalled the old coat tight in the armholes and the stiff hat and coarse gloves. She remembered the nudge and the frown with which Miss Wilde stopped her singing. But even then, she was in the house of love, and because she had known it, nothing could keep her from her own, and with her praise mingled the prayer that her life and Robert's might bring to many hearts the oil of joy for mourning and the garment of praise for the spirit of heavenness. After the service, both couples were besieged by friendly greetings and congratulations. The Meldons were among the first to press forward. Well, how's the voice? asked Mr. Meldon, we can hardly wait to hear you sing. What is all this? 
questioned Robert. Doris doesn't sing a note. Just then, Miss Graves intervened, grasping Doris with both hands, kissing her on the cheek, and talking so volubly that Robert's attention was diverted. Miss Wilde stood stonely in her pew, looking on. And Aurelia, whose childish beauty had vanished, and the peevish and discontented expression habitual to her, said, Come along, Ma. Don't give her the satisfaction of staring at her and all her glory. I'll stand right here until she comes along, replied Abigail. I wonder if she'll notice us at all. Doris approached slowly, along the rows of eager faces and outstretched hands. When she reached the wilds, she stepped aside, holding out one hand to Miss Wilde and the other to Aurelia. They took them icily. I was very sorry to learn of Mr. Wilde's death, she said kindly. Was he ill long? Only three days, said Abigail. It was pneumonia. How long you've been married? It was soon after Easter, answered Doris. And Aurelia, I hear you are married also. How we have grown up. How is Grandma? Very feeble now, said Miss Wilde. She's confined to her bed all the time, but her mind's pretty good. May I come to see her this afternoon? asked Doris. I'm not saying you shan't. Probably Ma will be glad to see you once more. Then I'll come right after dinner, said Doris. A big storeroom on the ground floor, back of the parlor, had been made into a bedroom for Grandma Lane since she became unable to walk, as it was much easier to take care of her there. Robert drove himself in a light buggy, and Doris enjoyed every feature of the landscape and the old store at the corners, and the crimson rambler that covered the porch of the post office. She remembered the very last time she walked over the road between the store and the Wilds' house. With the weight of terror concerning the strange man said to be her father, they drew up at the horse block. I think I will not go in, dear, said Robert. It isn't in me to be civil to that ogress. But please, Robert, tie the horse and come in with me. It will mean so much to poor little grandma to see my husband. And you know her mother and grandmother worked at the manor and knew the family away back. Aurelia opened the front door sullenly, and Dora said, Will you permit Mr. Austin to sit in the parlor at first until I have a little visit with Grandma? Miss Wilde, may I present my husband? It was said sweetly and naturally, but if Doris had known it, that moment revenged her for every unkind word and harsh look and heavy task that Miss Wilde had ever given her. She was shown by Aurelia into Grandma's room. The little old lady was propped up on pillows, tears of joy rolling over her wrinkled cheeks. Oh, my dear, she exclaimed feebly as Doris bent and kissed her. I've prayed so often to see you once more. I hear you're a grand lady now. But you haven't forgotten Grandma, have you? Do you remember that Christmas morning when you opened your stocking alongside of me in my bed and you give me a rubber bottle? and I used it three winters before it busted, and Annette Graves give me another. Oh, Doris, 
There's just one thing I want now sort of smooth me all out to go. I'm clean tuckered out, Doris, and I want to go, but I want to hear you sing The King of Love. Sit right down there by the bed and sing it, dearie. Robert was doing most of the talking in the parlor. There were three doors between that room and the one where Grandma was lying, but they were all wide open, as well as the windows, and suddenly Robert stopped short in the midst of a sentence, and his heart throbbed with a swift, wild, ecstatic, incredible happiness. His hands grasped the arms of the old, high-backed horsehair chair in which he was sitting. His head reeled. He could not believe his own ears. From the little bedroom floated a voice unworn, full, delicious, magnetic. The king of love, my shepherd is, who goodness felleth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. It was that voice that had summoned his whole being and the Bach oratorio, the very same again he sat beside his father and the Lucas Kirsch again. He thrilled in every fiber at the call of that woman's spirit to his own. Where streams of living waters flow, my ransomed soul he leadeth, and where the verdant pastures grow with food celestial feedeth. Unmindful of Miss Wilde and Aurelia, he leaned his head back and closed his eyes. Surely his cup of blessings was running over. And so through all the length of days, thy goodness faileth never. Good shepherd, let me sing thy praise within thy house forever. Dear Grandma, said Doris, after a few moments of silence, while she watched the ineffable peace that crept over the wan face, the house of the Lord is the house of love, and we shall go no more out. I'd like to see Ann Waverly's son, Doris, she said. Doris went to the hall door and called to her husband. She was standing by the bed as he entered the room. He put his arm around her and extended a cordial hand to the invalid. He could hardly speak. Grandma looked up at him and smiled, saying, I knew your mother years before you were born, sir. Let me give you and Doris an old woman's blessing. They bade her goodbye, promising to come again, but said not a word to each other until they had left the house and were driving down the road. Doris said Robert, his voice quite unsteady with the effect of the tremendous awakening he had just experienced. So, you were my singer, my dream lady, your own sweet rival. Why did you let me struggle along in the dark, haunted and perplexed? Because, replied his wife, laying her cheek against his shoulder, I wanted to be quite sure that you loved me just for myself, Bob. Well, here's a conundrum, sweetheart. Granted that a woman is absolutely precious, lovable, adorable, absolutely. Mind you, I... How can she possibly be any more so? Not if she can sing, asked Doris archly. End of House of Love by Elizabeth Cheney